Before we begin this week's 86th History episode, I just want to say thanks to everyone for tuning in to Let's Talk About Chef. We would not be able to make our show if it wasn't for you listening every week. If you are new to the show, welcome. And if you're one of the awesome people who listens every week, welcome back. I especially want to say thanks to all of the cooks and chefs that have been reaching out to the show, and I just want to say this show is made for you, and thanks for enjoying what we're doing so much. Because of the culinary community we are building, if you want us to shout out your restaurant on the show, just write to us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. Again, if you want to reach out to us, you can write to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can join our Instagram page at letstalkaboutchef, or you can follow me personally at Chef Brian Clark. There is a lot of exciting things happening with the show, and we can't wait to share them with you. We know that you have impossibly busy lives, and if you can spare one minute of them to rate and review Let's Talk About Chef on any platform that you can find us on, we would really appreciate it. It really helps to spread the word about us, or just tell one of your friends. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef Presents 86 History. Somewhere lost in history is the story of the first person to dive into the ocean see millions of shells on the bottom, and come back up to the air, emerging from the water, holding in their hand a sharp and seaweed-covered thing. They sat on the beach, turning it over in their hands, and eventually opened it. Inside was a mucus-looking membrane that smelt of seawater and brine and did not look like anything close to what they recognized as edible. They probably sniffed it, looked at it for a long time, And you know that before they tilted their necks back and slurped up the juicy, tender, and delicious oyster for the first time ever, they probably wondered if what they were about to eat was going to kill them. The next day, awakened to not in fact being dead, they probably ran to their village and broke the news that those shells that were piled in the shallow waters literally everywhere were not in fact weird rocks, but they were food. They weren't going to be hungry anymore. As the years went by, the tradition of going into the water and plucking an oyster from it and slurping it down passed from generation to generation. The poor people kept eating oysters while the rich men and women who watched these poor and depraved scavengers eat the stuff left over in shells feasted on meat and game and the finest food that their wealth could buy. Except that it wasn't. If we were to take aristocrats, royals, and tycoons from all over history and bring them to today, they would literally laugh at the food that we consider delicacies. They would scoff at the price we pay now for what we know to be delicious and hard to get and not understand why some will pay insane amounts of money for the pleasure of what they would consider garbage. But of course, we know the truth. The food that comes from the mouths of the poor is always, always, the most delicious. Welcome to Let's Talk About Chef, and this week we're talking about the 86th history of food that used to be trash. Lobsters are an insect. They are basically a large version of their air-breathing cousin, the cockroach. 
They scuttle around on the ocean floor eating trash and looking like something out of a horror movie, but they are absolutely delicious. Lobsters used to be considered pests. There used to be so many of them crawling around the shallow waters off coastlines that swimmers would have to fashion claw-proof footwear so that they wouldn't be cut by the claws of some 30-pound monster sea bug while they walked down the beach. And 30-pound lobsters weren't out of the ordinary. Lobsters do not stop growing unless they are eaten, killed, or suffocate by being caught in the low tide. They are the only creature on Earth that, as far as science can tell, does not operate by the mortal problem of aging. They just keep getting bigger until they die. And we don't actually know how old they are when they die. Somewhere, sometime, not too long ago, there were lobsters as big as children. And even though inside these armor freaks of nature was the most delicious meat you will find anywhere, still no one ate them. Lobster used to be so abundant that in early Massachusetts colonies, a large wave could pile them two feet high onto the beach. And the starving early settlers would watch them slowly scuttle back into the surf, not realizing that the millions of sea insects were actually food. Lobster was so hated and considered disgusting by the populations of America's first cities that it was deemed only as food fit for slaves and servants. There's a famous story of dock workers rioting against their wealthy overlords because they were being fed lobster three times a week. The wealthy colonists relented and actually signed union contracts promising that they would not subject their workers to the horrors of eating lobster less than twice a week. If you ate lobster, you were poor. You were pathetic. To put this into perspective, cans of lobster meat in the early 19th century used to cost 11 cents a pound. Cans of baked beans cost 53 cents a pound. To eat lobster, you were eating trash. Until the countryside of America started to be covered with train tracks. And early Americans started moving further and further inland. The train companies had to figure out how to feed their rich passengers well, but without costing a lot of money. Some of these train journeys would take days to get from the coast to mainland America. And so they had to devise a way to feed passengers cheaply. Enter the cheapest of all meat, the lobster. As the passengers rattling around on the tracks had no option but to eat the lobsters they were being served, they began to throw away their stigmas of the sea creature and started to love it. They began craving it. As years passed and children were born and more and more people were growing up and living away from the oceans in the heartland, they weren't exposed to the stigma about the food and so lobster became a delicacy. Only available when a train from Boston or Maine would roll into town with thousands of the things in crates about to be devoured by the crowds that were waiting for them to arrive at the station. The demand for lobster was so high by the 1920s that its price matched what we pay today for it which is a lot. It had gone from something that people would watch disgusted as they washed ashore by the millions to the most expensive food available all because of marketing. Selling a product that no one wanted and convincing those people that lived so far away from the ocean that lobster was delicious that made the sea insect the delicacy that it is and nothing has changed. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Daydream Lover, the lead single from Montreal indie legend Kreef off his new upcoming album Dovetail that is being released on June 7th from Rockridge Music. You can stream the new single now on any platform and please be sure to check him out on tour. 
All of Kreef's tour dates and album info are available on his website, kreef.ca. That's K-R-I-E-F dot C-A. And please make sure to pre-order the album now on iTunes. You will not be mad that you did. Whenever I hear the word caviar, I think of 1800s Russia, of oligarchs and czars chugging vodka and feasting on pounds of the small black eggs that had just been freshly pulled from the sacks of sturgeon. And I'm not wrong in thinking so. Caviar is what the Russian wealthy families ate, and they ate a lot of it. Because it was so hard to catch sturgeon in Russia's freezing waters and, quite frankly, dangerous, it was almost impossible for anyone but the richest Russian families to afford to eat it. And so, in Europe, caviar has always been seen as a delicacy. However, at the same time, across the ocean, in bars and pubs all over America, barmen had to figure out how to feed their customers salty food to get them to drink more. Nowadays, in most bars from dives to classy cocktail lounges, there are the customary bowls of nuts or pretzels to try and get a few more drinks out of somebody. But at that time, there were bowls of caviar and caviar sandwiches on the bars, and no one wanted to eat them. Sturgeon in America numbered in the millions. They filled cold water lakes and rivers to the point where catching them was basically inevitable. The fishermen would reel in what they thought was a huge salmon or trout to find a massive prehistoric bottom feeder, and they would swear, cut the eggs out to use to fertilize their gardens or feed to the family dog when they got back to the mainland. So when bars started to use caviar to give to their customers, they were basically offering them dog food. Meanwhile, back in Russia, the population of their own sturgeon was rapidly declining. A smart businessman who had heard word of the sheer amount of sturgeon in the New World set up a shipping line to bring American caviar over to Russia. And suddenly in the year 1900, there was a commercial fishing of sturgeon in America that resulted in them being almost wiped out by 1905. However, the Russians were having the best time ever. The caviar that was being sent over to them from America was so plentiful and delicious that everyday normal Russians could afford to eat it. No longer would the rich bastards in their castles be the only one who got to. As the American fishermen were pulling sturgeon out of the lakes by the millions to send overseas, they started to wonder why the Europeans were so insanely addicted to the small eggs inside of these fish, and so they started to eat them themselves. Suddenly they realized that they had a slight problem. Now they wanted caviar. However, trying to sell American caviar to Americans was not easy. Remember the whole dog food thing. But caviar that came from Russia was exotic, and therefore much better than the American stuff. The Russians who would be receiving American caviar by the boatload were also getting orders from America for Russian-caught caviar. They didn't have any sturgeon in their lakes, so they would just open the cans of American caviar, switch it to Russian caviar cans, and then ship it right back to the States and to the waiting upper class who couldn't wait to get their hands on it. In 1906, only six years after sturgeon started to be caught in America, the government had to step in and ban commercial fishing of the fish. 
they were almost completely wiped out. That ban is still active to this day and the sturgeon are slowly but surely growing in numbers again. Due to the ban and therefore no more caviar, the world relied on the small amount coming from Russia to feed its craving for the stuff, and so the price skyrocketed, making it a food again that was only available for the most wealthy. For one ounce of real Russian sturgeon caviar, you will have to spend around $400. It is an ingredient that can usually only be seen in three Michelin-starred restaurants and usually does not come with a price on it. Just hand them your credit card, and when you get the bill, don't look at the receipt. Hey guys, it's Brian. I'm a chef, and my morning routine usually consists of waking up, drinking a coffee, and then heading into work. I'm 32, and my body at the end of the day is not getting the boost it needs to make it through. And that's where Revive Organics comes in. Revive Organics delivers organic, preservative-free smoothies right to your door that you can just blend in the morning. It takes less time for me to make one cup of breakfast than it does for me to brew a pot of coffee, and I feel great. If you want to make a change in your life that is so easy to do, go to reviveorganics.ca to get started. And now, back to the show. Why is it that most great stories usually involve somebody being drunk and saying or doing something that results in genius? For example... Screen and playwright legend Aaron Sorkin wrote his play A Few Good Men while drunk bartending at Broadway's Palace Theater. He scrawled his words out onto napkins and then the next day found them stuffed into his pocket. J.K. Rowling came up with the idea for the broomstick-riding wizard sport Quidditch while drunk in a bar after having a fight with her then-boyfriend. General Ulysses S. Grant won the American Civil War while he was completely hammered. And in 1964, at the Anchor Bar in Buffalo, New York, the drunk son of the owner asked his mother to make him some chicken to eat. So, pissed off, she went to the kitchen, grabbed the garbage parts left over from butchering the breasts and thighs off of the birds, and deep-fried her son some food. Seeing as she was feeding her only begotten son trash, she then poured some sauce over it, put some celery onto the plate because he wasn't eating enough vegetables, and then put some blue cheese sauce on the side to help make the food edible. She then walked back out into the bar and handed to her absolutely inebriated son the first ever plate of chicken wings. Because he and his drunk friends liked the wings so much, the next day she put them on the menu and called her new invention Buffalo Wings. Before that day in 1964, chicken wings throughout history were trash, either thrown away, used as animal food, or used to make stock. No one had ever thought to eat them before. There is not a single written reference to the eating of a chicken wing before 1964. It seems strange now, considering every bar across the world serves them, and there seems to be a cheap wing night at most crappy chain restaurants. But there it is. Michael Jordan, Steve Carell, Quentin Tarantino, and probably a lot of people listening right now are all older than the chicken wing. For a couple of years, the buffalo wing stayed a true regional food, barely being served outside of the area. 
But something as simple and delicious as chicken wings didn't take long to spread across America and then the world. With the price of chicken today only going up and up and the demand for wings at an all-time high, the idea of getting a plate of chicken wings may soon disappear. It will just simply cost too much money to justify how little food you actually get from them. From nobody even thinking of eating a wing just 55 years ago to this year alone, Americans will eat 25 billion of them. If you find yourself in Buffalo, New York, and you want to go eat the first buffalo wing ever, you can still go to the Anchor Bar. It is still there. Grab the herd and head to Anchor Bar for Buffalo's original and best wings, and so much more. Every Thursday, get 20 wings and a large cheese pizza for just $25.50. Anchor Bar, on Transit Road in Williamsville. Real buffalo food. Somebody in history ate the first oyster. Somebody had the nerve and guts to crack open the shell and slurp up the insides. We will never know who actually ate the first oyster, but we do know when they did. There was a cave in South Africa that 164,000 years ago, our earliest ancestors ate the first oysters. Shells have been found that had been opened with tools alongside fish bones and even whale meat. Today, oysters are everywhere, and a dozen can usually cost around $36. But it was a very different story in the early 1900s. Back then, oysters were food that was only deemed fit for the poor, and the oyster beds that were in New York Harbor were full of hundreds of millions of them. On any given day, six million oysters were pulled from the ocean and brought into New York for the workers and poor to eat, and the streets were covered in piles of empty shells up to six feet high. As more and more people arrived in New York, the oyster population started to go down. The demand for the cheap but nutritious food was causing them to rapidly disappear. At some point, the fishermen started to realize that they were going to run out of oysters very quickly, and not wanting to lose all of the money they were making, foreign oysters were brought in to try and repopulate the beds. But some of the new oysters were full of disease, and they basically wiped out the American oysters, depleting their numbers to almost nothing. The problem was that the public wanted them, and now seeing that the price was rising so rapidly from almost nothing to more expensive than beef, the wealthy class of New York took notice. They started to buy the oysters for themselves. If the poor couldn't afford to eat them, then the shellfish were finally good enough for the rich. The fishermen realized that they could continue to survive and actually make more money if they jacked the price up on the oysters and sold them not to the poor, but to the wealthy. And ever since then, the price of oysters has stayed where it was for over a hundred years. Hey, Marky, set them up here for me and my friends. Okay, boys, you want them steam, stewed, or new? Beer? Oh, oysters. This is no ordinary bar, you know. You're sitting at DJ's 60-foot Orleans-style oyster bar, where we crack fresh Apalachicola oysters for you one at a time as you eat them. And Tina over there is going to be your own personal oyster shuck. Well then, set us up around oysters, okay, boys? Yeah! What you got here at DJ's Sides Oysters? A complete menu. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced by Timothy McDonald. Our theme song is Cone of Light by the Almighty Defenders. If you want to reach out to us, you can write to us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. I want to thank Revive Organics and the single Daydream Lover from Creep for letting us talk about them this week. 
And I want to give a shout out to Butcher and the Rye in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you are in Pittsburgh or just passing through, go and check them out. And thanks to them for writing in. We are back next Wednesday with a new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And until then, have a great week.